0: pepperidge farm milano the richest most powerful place on earth a fiction podcast Duman bay. Duman bay.
1: on an epic scale power is everything power gives everything
0: we have to get away from this place
1: Tuman bay is our destiny
0: now on the iheart podcast network toman bay. bay be sharp and die Listen to all episodes of and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. I'm Holly Fry. I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
0: Uh, and today's topic is one we've actually been asked about a couple times. It's another one that's also been on my list for a long time. I'm kind of trying to go back to the ones that I wrote down when we first moved on to the podcast as hosts that I was really excited about, and then they get lost in the shuffle. Oh,
1: You know what happened to mine? What? We moved offices, and my and whiteboard white got erased. The whiteboard with my stuff on it got erased. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm going back to some of those because
0: I always intended to do them. And this one is a little bit of a ghost story. It's got a little bit of U.S. military history, and it also features animals. So it's kind of a wacky mixed bag uh, in terms of topics. And I decided to kind of back off of doing much of an intro on it because I kind of love the oddness of the story and I want listeners to sort of hear how it plays out. Like there's an explanation of what's initially seems supernatural to some people. Um, so we're just going to kind of set the scene and then kind of explain what was really going on and how that came to be. Uh, so it starts in 1883 and, uh, And at this point, a mysterious beast was spotted in Arizona. This is the first time that this particular one is spotted. Uh, And most of this story at the beginning, I should say, is all reported by the Mojave County Miner, which was a small newspaper. Uh, And I didn't have access to those particular ones. I have it written as relayed by another researcher. So. Just heads up on that. So in 1883, uh, there were these two women who were home with their children while the men of the family were away tending their sheep flock. And they had had some issues with Native Americans and sheep issues uh, that are not really germane to the story. But So uh, while the men were away and these two women were at home alone with the children, they had an encounter which would unfortunately prove fatal for one of them.
1: So according to the legend, shortly after one of the women left the house on Eagle Creek to go get some water, the dog started barking and that prompted the other woman to go to the window and see what was going on.
0: And sh- what she saw, she described as an enormous red beast ridden by the devil. Uh, she heard screams, but because uh, she was too terrified to leave the house, she just kind of barricaded the door uh, she is said to have kind of frantically said prayers the rest of the time until the men returned.
1: So when the men came home and heard her story, they immediately mounted a search party for the other woman who had gone out to get water. But they didn't get far because they found her nearby, trampled to death.
0: And because this was sort of a mysterious death, there was some suspicion initially by the um the authorities that examined the body that maybe she had been murdered by someone in the family, even though the condition of the body was obviously very unique and that it had been trampled. Uh, there was an inquest. But in the end, the verdict and in the investigation was reported in the local paper, the Mojave County Minor, that I mentioned as, quote, death in some manner unknown.
1: So just a few days after that, and a few miles northeast of the first sighting, two prospectors woke up in the night when their tent was crushed. They returned to their mining camp in Ore, Arizona, with tales of this impossibly tall horse. When a party made its way back to the trampled camp, they found red hairs and large hoof prints in the area.
0: And naturally, this, on top of the, uh, the woman having been killed in this sort of mysterious way, uh really sort of started this, you know, cultural phenomenon that is very natural of tall tales and gossip uh, about what started to be called the Red Ghost. And some of the people talking about it claimed that they had seen and even pursued the Red Ghost. One said he saw it vanish into thin air before his eyes. So they really were laying on the supernatural abilities at this point.
1: About a month after the death of the woman at Eagle Creek, a rancher named Cyrus Hamblin was out getting stray cattle, kind of rounding them up, when he spotted the beast near the Salt River. And this was 80 miles northeast of the earlier sightings. And unlike previous encounters, he knew what it was. It was a camel. Yeah, he.
0: Uh, it, it was not entirely unheard of for camels to be in this area. Uh, unusual, but not unheard of. Uh, And Hamblin could see that there was also some sort of load that was strapped to the animal's back, but he couldn't get close enough to catch the camel or identify what that was on his back. But he said that he believed that it looked like a deceased man, and eventually the camel escaped him.
1: Hamblin's word on the matter solidified this whole story of the Red Ghost, which people also called the Fantasia Colorado. Uh, That was what the Spanish-speaking settlers of the area primarily called it. The rancher was a, was well respected and his tail was not really embellished. He didn't put a lot of, you know, crazy spin on it. He didn't throw in any supernatural or fantastical elements except for the part that there was probably a dead man on the creature's back, which some people were kind of skeptical about.
0: Yeah. Uh, but he was very matter of fact about it. Like I think there was a dead guy on the back of that camel. <laughs> which is a phrase you never think you're going to say, but there you go. Uh, so several weeks after Hamlin's uh, incident, this time about 60 miles to the west of where Hamlin had had his encounter, another group of prospectors spotted what was believed to be the same animal. This, at this point, having been still believed by some people to be supernatural and others to be like, no, no, it's Camel. uh, They thought that the best course of action was just to start firing wildly at it. And they didn't actually hit it, however. Uh, or if they did, they merely grazed it. But as it ran for its life, The burden that was on its back, because there was something on its back, dislodged. And the prospectors, once the camel had gone, advanced on this fallen cargo. And what they actually discovered was, in fact, a human skull with some hair and a very few shreds of decomposed skin still clinging to it. And so in this moment, Cyrus Hamblin's story was completely corroborated by this rather grisly discovery. So it once again supported, no, no, he is really a stand-up guy that doesn't talk crazy. There is a dead guy on that camel's back.
1: Yeah, in 1893, so 10 years after the first sightings of the red ghost, a man by the name of Mizzou Hastings found a red camel eating in his garden in Orr, Arizona, and this time he shot it dead. The camel had straps of leather still tied to it, and in some places the straps had cut into its flesh. This residual strap work led people to conclude that this was the same camel that had been running around the area with a corpse strapped to it for the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, the corpse wasn't actually there the whole time, but it was a very intricate, like a, a, uh, a netting almost of these straps. So he had been wearing those straps and presumably pieces of this deceased person for quite some time. Uh, but who the dead man was remains something of a mystery,
1: <laughs> I read your notes as where the dead man was remained something of a mystery, and I'm like scattered around the desert. Well,
0: the, that part we know, uh, or we presume. Uh, and in the years between the time that the skull had been picked up and uh, when Mizzou Hastings had killed the red ghost, uh, and there had been other sightings during that time, but there had also been a lot of speculation that perhaps the corpse uh, had been a man who had strapped himself onto the camel when he was thirsty and near death, hoping that the animal was going to eventually lead him to water.
1: Didn't work, apparently.
0: Well, they realized that wasn't really what happened.
1: Well, once the felled camel and its straps had been examined, though, it was apparent that they could not have been tied by a man, the man who was riding. And this conclusion led the Mojave County miner to say this. The only question is whether the man was tied on for revenge or merely as an ugly piece of humor by someone who had a camel and a corpse for which he had no use.
0: Yeah, so there's it's never really been uh, solved one way or the other in addition to who it was, but whether he had been alive or dead when he had been strapped to the camel. So uh, the mystery of the Red Ghost was as solved at that point as it was ever going to be. Uh, However... That leads us to the next part of the episode, which is uh, why a camel was wandering around the American Southwest in the first place. And before we get to that, uh, we're going to have a word from our sponsor. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news.
0: Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip.
1: You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuffy Mist in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too.
0: And now we will hop back to Arizona.
1: So the introduction
0: of camels into the U.S. was actually a military function, and it actually took two decades from the time the first studies were conducted about this idea to the actual introduction of camels into the American Southwest.
1: It all started in 1836 when E.F. Miller Esquire conducted a camel study and wrote a letter detailing his findings to the U.S. Quartermaster Captain George H. Crossman of Georgia. And, uh... In the spring of
0: 1843, so it was still some years later, U.S. Quartermaster General Thomas S. Jessup received a letter from Crossman extolling the potential virtues of camels as pack animals for use in military service. Crossman characterized camels as imposing and being potentially intimidating to the horses favored by Native Americans. So they felt that they would have the upper hand in any dealings uh, with natives. And camels had also, you know, after all, been part of various militaries throughout world history. And Crossman cited Miller's research as a source of validation for all his assertions about how great camels could be for the service.
1: This is because the Discworld books didn't exist yet. <laughs> they do we, not we need to find a time machine and then hand it off to yeah, them and they they'll... they don't pull any punches about how terrible camels can be to work with. <laughs> Crossman also discussed using camels in the army with the quartermaster, Henry Wayne, who was very interested in the idea. And
0: then in 1848, so this is still all percolating along via years and years and years, uh, Henry Wayne went to the War Department with this idea. And though that had already taken quite some time, it was actually another six years before the concept of introducing camels into military service in the U.S. took another significant step.
1: That was in 1854 when Jefferson Davis, the Secretary of War, made a report to the Senate proposing the introduction of camels into army use. And in addition to the previous missives that promoted the use of camels, Davis had also been influenced by Naval Officer Edward Fitzgerald Beale. Beale had read the writing of Evariste Hook, a French missionary who penned a travel diary called uh, Recollections of a Journey Through Tartary, Tibet, and China, During the years 1844, 1845, and 1846, he was really taken with the accounts of camels in this work. And he shared his very enthusiastic point of view on the topic with anyone who would listen, including Jefferson Davis.
0: And the timing of this at this point was good because of the increasing burden that the U.S. was facing in the Southwest at the time. So Davis's idea really was met with some enthusiasm. And this was because there was a growing need uh, both for transportation of troops as well as for moving heavy loads of supplies. So this is, you know, mid-1800s when we are slowly pushing out to the West and things are being built. Uh, and the ability of camels to survive in conditions similar to those in the desert areas of the Southwest started to make them look like a pretty appealing solution to the problems.
1: So in early 1855, Davis was granted a budget of $30,000 to start working on a camel corps. He immediately sent Henry Wayne to the eastern Mediterranean to find suitable camels to buy. And Wayne was joined in this mission by Navy Lieutenant David
0: Dixon Porter, who was actually a relative of Beale. And the two men did not make a direct route through the Mediterranean to, like, camel country. They actually stopped at many places along the way. Uh, they stopped throughout Europe. They interviewed camel experts and got their opinions. They talked to zoologists. They visited with royals who owned camels as part of their menageries. Uh, and they also made several stops around the Mediterranean. Like, they visited Tunis, they visited Malta. And in some of these places, they would purchase stock if they found it suitable. Uh, they also, while they were doing all of this stuff, dropped off Wayne's son at a French boarding school where the boy stayed for several years. He did not finish the, uh, the camel travel.
1: <laughs> while you're in France.
0: Why don't you go to school for a while? Yeah. <laughs> On
1: February 15, 1856, Wayne and Porter started their journey back to the U.S. aboard the USS Supply, and they were traveling with 33 camels. This was a mix of Arabian, uh, Bactrian Tunis, and Tulu camels, along with five handlers this group landed at Indianola, Texas
0: on May 14th, and that's where the camels were offloaded from the USS Supply. And then they began marching uh, to their destination, which was Camp Verde, and they got to Camp Verde on August 27th of that same year. In
1: 1857, Porter made the journey to the eastern Mediterranean, again, bringing back 41 more camels. Also in 1857, uh, Beale took one of the camel handlers who was named Haji
0: Ali, who you will also see him listed in historical uh, references. high Jolly, because apparently Americans that could not quite manage his name nicknamed him that.
1: You see my, my expression of being rather nonplussed. Yeah,
0: he didn't apparently seem terribly concerned with it. Um, but the, they all went on a survey expedition, which had been ordered by President James Buchanan. And this team was tasked with building a wagon road from Fort Defiance, New Mexico, to the Colorado River. And they took 25 camels with them on this uh assignment so that they could test out the beasts. And
1: it turned out that the camels did a really good job. Side note, this wagon trail also marked the travel path that would eventually become the legendary Route 66. Yeah, first found by camels. Yeah, my my friends uh, Nate and Carrie drove the entire length of that as a summer vacation last summer.
0: I have friends that moved out to Los Angeles last year and they did a similar thing
1: on the way. I think it's an awesome, fun thing if you have road trip time. Yeah. Having only witnessed other people doing it. Yeah, I'm kind of like, let's get to the destination already. Okay. Not
0: be in the car all day. But that's me. Uh
1: It turned out that these
0: camels could easily carry 300 pounds and they could travel for four miles an hour, which doesn't sound terribly fast, but compared to other options, they did quite well, uh, especially considering their heavy cargo, with very few stops, so they could just kind of go all day long. Uh, and they didn't really need to have provisions for their meals carried along, because they, they were able to grade on the cedar and the creosote bush that were plentiful along the route, and which other pack animals could not eat. Uh, and the camels were also able to outlast other pack animals on difficult journeys. So in some cases, when they had brought other animals along, they would have to abandon them because they could not hack the conditions. Oh, no. Whereas the camels could just keep going.
1: That's terrible. Oh, it
0: is. This one's a little rough for the animal lover in me. Do you
1: like boats? Do you
0: like big boats? Do you like people working on yachts? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on yachts? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spin-offs. We got Below Deck Mediterranean and Below Deck Sailing Yacht. And we're going to release an episode every Monday through Friday so you can watch along with us and listen to our Silly Daily Recaps. Since podcasters are the scum of the earth and below the people who work below deck, we record in the bowels of the boat. That's right. We're just two fabulous idiots trying to catch you up on one of the most wonderful shows on television with our self-proclaimed quirky and offbeat personalities. I never said that. Okay. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Henry Wayne in particular really championed the camel's usefulness. According to one story, after hearing remarks about the camels not being impressive as pack animals... He had one of his camels loaded with four hay bales, which totaled more than a thousand pounds, to just show off how strong it was.
0: Yeah, again, the animal lover in me struggles with a little bit of this story. Um, Like, that's kind of abusive. But uh, So initially, you know, at this point, the camel corps looked like it was going to be a success because they were doing very well in the desert conditions. They could carry loads. They could outlast mules and horses, no problem. But, of course, that is not the whole story.
1: If you've ever, ever seen a book... With a camel in it. Or maybe just like seeing a picture of a camel. If you've ever seen a camel. You're right. Even if it's been like a a far away glimpse of a camel. You can probably grasp that they have tempers.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what they're known for when I think most people, if they just do a quick, like, association and someone says camel, you think, oh, my goodness, they're going to spit and trample me.
1: Yep, uh, that has proved to be a problem. They could be very difficult, and they sometimes completely disregarded their handlers. They would growl at soldiers as they approached with loads that they were going to, like, pack, uh, on them. pack onto them. Oh, and also, camels smell pretty bad.
0: Yeah, uh... And I'm sure they probably weren't getting washed very regularly.
1: I, I'm just imagining what effort it would take to wash a camel at this point in history. Yeah. it A lot. It would take a they, lot of effort. They couldn't just pull out a hose. No. No. I mean, you... you uh, They're... oh naturel. Probably buckets. Maybe.
0: Rainstorms. Hope.
1: Okay. Uh...
0: And that smell is actually part of the reason uh, it's attributed to, to part of the reason why they spooked the horses. Uh, and as you recall, this had been a selling point for the Camel Corps when it came to the horses the Native Americans used. But this was a huge problem when there were horses that were being used by the same U.S. troops that were also employing the camels. And they had to deal with this interspecies Uh, Problem. So the horses were not delighted by the camel's presence. They would get very scared. And keep in mind, these are large animals. So when one is angry and one is spooked, you can imagine how difficult it is to sort of corral that and then multiply that by the many that were traveling together. Yeah,
1: that could be deadly. That's a deadly combination. Uh And it's
0: probably understandable that many of the soldiers openly complained about the situation. Uh And even General David Twiggs, who commanded Texas and thus was a very powerful man in the military, he made it pretty clear that he would just rather have mules and could we please not deal with these camels.
1: So as the Civil War mounted, Confederate troops took Camp Verde in uh, February of 1861. And so while the camels had proven their usefulness,
0: they still were not a standard part of military operations. This was still considered an experimental concept. And they hadn't really been planned for as part of the Confederate war effort. So the animals then were, you know, there at Camp Verde. And they were used and sometimes abused. Again, a little difficult for the animal lover. Uh, in a variety of sometimes kind
1: of odd ways. Some were used for just transporting goods and freight, just like they had been prior to 1861. Some were used for entertainment rides, and some were sent around to other bases. One was allegedly pushed off a cliff by Confederate soldiers because they found it bothersome, and they didn't want to take care of it. And some were just neglected or set loose.
0: Yeah, I mean, my heart breaks at the thought of an animal being... Off a cliff. thrown off a cliff or even just abandoned or neglected. Uh, at the same time, just from the point of view of like someone in that situation, I can imagine that there is an element of I don't know what to do with these things. And there is a herd of them at this camp uh, and they just didn't know how to deal with them. We should also mention that while being set loose in some cases may have seemed like a kindness, uh, we should note that these animals had been bred in domestication. I mean, they were bred as stock They weren't like wild camels that had been caught and tamed. So they had never been wild. And fending for themselves in the brush, even though they were physiologically, you know, pretty well suited to the environment, was likely a very stressful situation. And additionally, when prospectors or cowhands would encounter these animals that had been set free just wandering, they kind of viewed them as target practice. So they were really treated very poorly and inhumanely.
1: Union troops took Camp Verde back in 1865, but reconstruction resulted in a diversion of funds away from the Camel Corps, and as the railroad system was built farther and farther west, uh, you know, the camels had been helping to run supplies for a lot of the construction, the need for the camels just evaporated. And in
0: 1866, most of the remaining camels, uh, when Camp Verde had been taken back, were sold at auction in New Orleans, Louisiana, and also in Benicia, California. And these were sold at significant loss. Uh, some were purchased by circuses, carnivals, or zoos. Some were likely sold to be used as meat. Some were purchased by, like, just private people who were like, I have money, I'll buy a camel. And then they often turned around and resold them for a much higher rate. They were, in in essence, camel flippers. I was just
1: thinking camel flippers. Yeah. So today there are camel core reenactors who keep a small number of camels for education purposes. There's a comedy film made about the whole thing in the 70s. Uh, and there's even a children's book about it.
0: There's also uh, a memorial to the camel corps at the final resting site of the camel handler Haji Ali in Quartzsite, Arizona. And it's kind of a pyramid shaped, uh, little memorial that stands there and references both, uh, Haji Ali's work as well as just the camel corps itself because he stayed in the U.S. even after his need, his work as a camel handler was done.
1: While the red ghost was felled in 1893, camel sightings continued in Arizona, California, and Mexico well into the 20th century. Even in the 1950s there were people who claimed that there were still camels in Sonora and Baja California. Yeah,
0: completely random species introduced and were allegedly, you know, kind of surviving in the desert for a long time, some being very elderly I'm sure and others possibly having uh, mated and had their own little camel families.
1: I, I am going to say that I am relieved that it was not more like the introduction of kudzu. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if camels overran the Southwest the way rabbits overran Australia?
0: I, I thought about that as I was doing this. I was like, I guess camels didn't do so well in the whole, uh, propagating and, and sort of, you know, uh, a huge blow up of population, which is good. I still feel very bad for the camels because I can't get past that. Uh, and it, it's interesting, you'll hear sometimes or read when you're looking at research about this, uh, there are historians who like to theorize what would have happened if we hadn't completely abandoned the camel core experiment. Because it did seem like it had some uh, fairly, you know, positive aspects to it, even though the camels tended to be grumpy and problematic you know, some like to wonder what had happened if the Union Army had incorporated them into regular service after they had taken back Camp Verde. And we'll never know, of course, but we do know that they could survive on their own in the desert for decades. Uh, so, you know, on the off chance you're in the Southwest and see a random camel, That's probably related why. to those. Yeah, uh, There haven't been sightings in decades, so I would be shocked. But you never know, unless yeah. some ridiculous wealthy person purchases one as a pet and then sets it free because they're a fool, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, but that is the camel core. And that's one of those things that um, because it involves so many moving parts and names that are also connected to other aspects of the Civil War, you know, it can quickly blossom out into a very huge and long thing. And we may eventually cover other parts of this story that kind of interlock. But that's the scoop on why there was a camel running around looking like a devil uh killing people <laughs> so, with a, with a corpse. Yeah, and it kind of explains when you think about that uh why that camel seemed to be pretty aggressive towards humans. It had clearly been treated badly. Someone had strapped a person to it and sent it off. It was carrying something around uh that was tied tightly enough to be cutting into its flesh, so mm-hmm. it probably was very grumpy. Did not associate humans with good things. No. So. Uh
1: that's the scoop. Do you have some listener mail for us? I do and it's such a gear
0: change from Camels. It will involve no animal talk whatsoever. Uh it is from our listener Allison and she says, um I am a cartoonist who loves history so I love being able to listen. So being able to listen while I draw is wonderful. I'm writing to ask for advice possibly for both of you but perhaps mostly Holly as I know of her passion for historical clothing. I want to make a comic about the history of underwear. Okay, Maya side, Allison, I just fell a little bit in love with you. <laughs> of course, she says, the first thing I did was to search your archives, and I was so happy to find the episode about that exact topic. I really enjoyed it, and it piqued my interest even more. I'm looking for suggestions for books, websites, and anything else you might think would be helpful. I don't know much about the history of clothing in general, so I have a lot of research ahead of me, so any guidance is welcome. Uh Oh, I'm so happy to suggest my two favorite books and one other thing. Um, The first is one called Corsets and Crinolines. It's written by a woman named Nora Waugh. It's kind of considered the gold standard of underwear history. I will tell you this, it's laid out a little bit oddly in terms of how the chapters are sectioned. But once you kind of get the hang of the structure of it... It all makes a lot of sense, uh, and it's a pretty comprehensive history. Have you ever encountered that one, Tracy? I don't. Well, Because n- you've done some historical stuff as well. Yeah,
1: the, the name rings a bell, but I have not read it.
0: Uh, It's a good one. I will let you borrow it if you want. The other one is one that's called Costume in Detail, and it's written by Nancy Bradford, and it kind of breaks down like different elements up close of, of clothing and what they are and how they all function, and it's just sort of a good um baseline education on, on what was happening in clothing at different points in history. Uh, the other thing that I would recommend is actually a DVD, and it's, uh, it's put out by Laughing Moon Mercantile, which is primarily a historical pattern company. If you just Google Laughing Moon Mercantile, it'll come up, although the spelling of the URL is a little bit funky for laughing. I think it's L-A-F-N. Um I'm not sure why. But in any case, uh, they, produced, and it's a little bit old, but the information is all still, you know, basically current because they're talking about historical stuff. It's actually a DVD on how to make a Victorian corset, but the whole first part of it is kind of a history of corsets and how they function, which if you're looking at it as, uh, sort of uh, fact gathering so that you can draw about them. You will learn exactly what is supporting what and how it all goes together from sort of a um, the physics and engineering aspect, which will only make your drawings better. So those would be my recommendations for Allison and really anybody that wants to learn about historical underpinnings. Uh, those are, pardon the pun, a great foundation for uh, learning about foundations and, and where they all start. So that's that. If you would like to write to us and ask us about uh, historical undergarments or anything else with camels, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can also connect with us at Facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at mistinhistory, and on history.tumblr.com We are also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash history, And you can visit us on our very own shiny and bright website, which is history.com If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent website, HowStuffWorks, and in the search bar, type in Camel, and you will find an article, that is, how long can a camel go without water? It is quite long. Uh, quite a long time. The article isn't really
1: long. <laughs> I thought you meant the article. Was the article t- is
0: 22 pages about the camel water absorption system. No, it is brief and gets to the point. Uh, if you would like to learn about that or really anything else your mind can conjure, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homan, Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal pop-a-shot abilities and has, in fact, started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grind it and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow, get a grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.